Okay, good morning everyone. And uh, we get to our second of the three uh, sessions on Megillat Ruth. Um, so the book of Ruth has four chapters. The first chapter takes, the story takes place essentially on the road back. Family of Naomi, Elimelech's husband, the family moves to Stamalav and their tragedy befalls the family. Elimelech dies, the two sons die, and uh, Naomi heads back to Bethlehem together with her two daughters-in-law. And the conversation takes place on the way back on the road. At the end of the day, Arpah turns back, uh, not immediately, but she turns back and Ruth uh, stays with her and declares that she will uh, accompany her, not leave her. And she even takes an oath. So she swears that she's going to uh, accompany her. And that's a very powerful dialogue conversation between Ruth and Naomi in chapter one. And they come back to Beit Lechem at the very end of chapter one. It says, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now the barley harvest on our calendar, essentially, that's Pesach, the Omer. So Omer begins with Mokras Hashabos, that tradition, it's the second day of Pesach, and that's the time of the barley harvest. So the story begins with the barley harvest, and the second chapter, is uh, takes place in the in the field. Ruth is going to meet Boaz in the field. Ruth goes to the field to bring food back for Naomi and for herself. So the focus in chapter two is the field. Now, in the context of chapter two, last week we took note of the fact that uh, when Ruth comes to the field, she begins to glean. She she's poor person who's going to follow the reapers and, and collect some of the food. And Boaz returns from Beit Lechem. This is in chapter 2 and uh, the fourth verse, fourth pasuk, in a Boaz bami Beit Lechem, vayom l'akotzim Hashem imachem, vayom Hashem. So they exchange blessings. And then Boaz asks in the fifth pasuk, he speaks to the one in charge of the reapers, who's this young woman? Who is she? The fellow says, she's a young Moabite woman. Returns with Naomi. And she's been working very assiduously. Let me get, let me glean and gather among the sheaves. After those, the harvesters are left behind, the reapers. So she's been working very hard. She has uh, rested very little in the in the in the uh, in the hut in the bayit. And now in the sixth uh, pasuk. Boaz speaks to Ruth. So he tells her not to leave. 
וגם לא תעבורי מזה, בכל תדבקין עם נערותיי, stay here, תדבקין, cleave to נערותיי, to my girls, and he says, you know, I stay in this field, don't go elsewhere, I've commanded the men not to, not to bother you, and furthermore, if you're thirsty, you can take, you can drink as well from, the, from that which the young men drink. At which point, Ruth uh, bows down, she says, why have you recognized me? I'm an alien, I'm a foreigner. She's a Moabite. So Boaz answers her. It was told to me all that you did for your mother-in-law after your husband died. You left your mother, father, and your home. To go to a nation of which you did not know, you didn't know them. And therefore, God should reward you. Your deeds, God should be rewarded. And again, your reward should be complete, full. From the God of Israel, under whose canopy, under whose wings, under whose protection you have come. So last week, we made the point that this description of leaving your mother and father and Moladatecha, your birthplace, your home, reminds us of Avraham. Avram was commanded, He leaves his father's house and he leaves Molad the toe. He leaves his birthplace, his home, to go to a place, says God, that I will show you. It's a place you don't know. It's a place that I will show you. And this marks Ruth as an Abraham type figure. And the point that I was emphasizing last week is that she's marked as an Abraham figure in two different ways. First of all, she's marked as an Abraham figure because she exhibits the two primary qualities, positive qualities of Abraham in the Abraham narrative. And that is the willingness to leave his place, the Lechucha, which we have both in chapter 12 and chapter 22. That is to say, God's first communication with Abraham and God's last communication with Abraham. And the other uh, quality she exhibits is chesed, the quality of kindness. Abraham exhibits that when he greets these strangers in chapter 18, takes them in, feeds them, cares for them. Uh, and of course, you have here Ruth going to the field and collecting the food to bring to uh, to her mother, to Naomi, who apparently is too old to go out to the field to collect, and Ruth is a young woman, so she exhibits in the positive sense uh, the two primary qualities of Abraham that are present in the biblical in, in Breshit, and those two same qualities are exhibited by Rivka in the book of in Breshit as well, her willingness to leave home for parts unknown, and of course, the kindness that she shows, shows to the stranger who is coming with his 10 camels and she takes care of him and his camels, etc. So she is also a spiritual child 
the spiritual child of, of Abraham. So you have two. Abraham has two spiritual children. In the Chumash, it's Rivka. And here, it's, it's Ruth. Now, I added to that last week an additional point that will be very central to the book of Ruth. And that is that she's like Abraham in another sense. Because the Abraham narrative has a foil. Actually, it has two foils. But the two foils in the Abraham narrative, one is Avimelech. That's very important to the Abraham narrative, but that's not our topic today. But the other foil is Lot. By foil, I mean somebody who on one hand is very similar, very, very similar. And the similarity allows the text and us to discriminate between the two of them. So Lot accompanies Abraham when he first goes. And what happens to Lot, the way Lot behaves and Avram behaves are very similar. But at the end of the day, Lot leaves the land and Lot doesn't make it back into the land. He's instructed to leave Sodom. And in Sodom, he behaves on one hand like Avraham. He takes the strangers into his home in chapter 19 of Breshit. No one else will take them in. Lot brings them in and he feeds them. And then when the house is surrounded by the people of Sodom, all the people, he then offers his two daughters to the people of Sodom. That's something that the Sodomites do. So Lot on one hand is an Abraham figure in terms of welcoming the stranger. On the other hand, he leaves the land. He doesn't actually make it back to the land, though he's told to go back. And there's a piece of Lot that's like, that's like Sodom. So that's, and then after he leaves Sodom, he ends up fathering two children through his daughters. And uh, the oldest one is Moab, the oldest one is Ammon. And uh, so that's one story which recalls for us Moab. Actually, Moab is born in that story. And then there's a second story of Moab, uh, which of course is the story of Bilam and Balak, Balak the king of Moab, who hires Bilam to uh, curse Israel. The curse is uh, transformed into a blessing. And the Chumash in Sefer Dvarim says you should not accept the Ammoni and the Moavi into your community, even the 10th generation, for two reasons. Because they hired Bilam to curse you, and because they didn't give you bread and water when you left the land of Israel on the, on the road, on the path back. So Moab then, in the Chumash, uh, is the people that brings about or attempts to bring about curses. And Moab is the one who does not feed you, show no hospitality to our, our cousins, show us no hospitality. And the Moab in Sefer Breshit is a story about uh, incest. And I called it last week, uh, it can be seen even as a attempt at leveret marriage, but it's a leveret marriage that doesn't work. And hopefully today I'll have more opportunity to talk about that. But my point last week is that Ruth is the opposite of Lot. Ruth is one who leaves her home and goes to the land. Lot never makes it. Ruth is one who brings Lechem, 
brings the food back to Naomi. So she has that quality. And on top of all that, the book of Ruth is filled with blessings. Ruth is actually the source of blessing. So she's an anti-Moab. She's a Moabite who's the opposite of Moab. She's Lot's descendant who's the opposite of Lot. But if you're the opposite of Lot, then you're Abraham. Because Lot functions in the biblical text as Abraham's foil. So she's Abraham-like in two senses. She's Abraham-like and she actually like Abraham. But that's reinforced by the fact that she's described in the text as being not like Moab, not like Lot. So that was the point I made last week. If someone had a question about that, I want to clarify that. Now, the point is that we'll come back to this business of, of Lot because Lot figures in the story. Lot is one of the intertexts of the book of Ruth and a very central one. In any event, chapter two takes place in the field, in the Sudan. And it gives us an insight actually into Boaz and a very important insight into Boaz. And I'll begin with the following question. It says, uh, Boaz approaches Ruth and he says to her, um, don't, you know, don't go elsewhere. Uh, don't go elsewhere. He says, In the eighth verse, don't go elsewhere, stay here, and no one's going to bother you. No, the, the guy's not going to bother you. And if, you, if you drink, seriously, you can drink. I treat, I treat you like I treat all everybody else, no different. That's what he says to her. And Ruth is astonished. Why are you being so nice to me? Lahaki Rainy, why do you recognize me? I'm a foreigner, I'm a stranger. And Boaz answers, No, Hugedu Godly, it's been told to me all that you did for your mother in law after the death of your husband. You left your home, etc. Eretz Moradatech, etc. God should reward you. Now, let's begin this morning's session with what's well, morning here in New York, anyway. Uh, let's begin with the question. What do you mean, who gave, who godly? Who told him? Because if we look in this chapter, he talks to this, the, the fellow in charge of the, of the Kotsrim. He says, who is she? Oh, that's the Moabite girl who came back with Naomi. She's working very assiduously. She's been there from the morning. She hasn't stayed in the house almost at all. So the Nara HaKotsrim says what he says. She's a Moabite. And she came back with Naomi, and she's working very hard. I see nothing negative about the Narhanitzavachakotzrim. I don't see a critique over here. Some people apparently see this as a critique. I don't. But he's giving a simple statement. She's a Moabite kid who came back with Naomi. But the point is, when Boaz says, responds, "Why are you being so kind to me?" I know the whole story. You left your, you left your, you left your, left your home. Your husband has died. How did she know that? So he wasn't told by the Nara Nitzavah Kotsrim. It would appear in any event. You could say that the Nara Nitzavah Kotsrim gave her all this information, but it doesn't sound that way. So he seems to know it from a different place, and presumably, he knows it 
from what takes place in the previous chapter, in chapter one, because it says when Naomi returns with Ruth, it says uh, in verse number 19 of chapter one, and the city was buzzing with excitement. Well, can this be Naomi? Everybody's talking. This is Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she says, which means sweetness. Call me Mara, call me bitter. God has made my life very bitter. I went out full and I come back empty. By that she means I went out full. I had a husband, I had two sons. I come back empty. So the, the knowledge that Naomi has lost husband and two sons, that's already in chapter one. The city knows. The city is Bethlehem, Beit Lechem. Boaz is from Beit Lechem. In fact, that's how chapter two begins. So presumably he knows already the whole story. He doesn't know this is the woman, Ruth, but he knows that she's a widow. So you might ask the question, who cares? What's the difference if he knows it from chapter one or he knows it from chapter two? But there is a difference. Because if he knows it already from chapter one, then it raises the following question. Since chapter two begins, Naomi had a kinsman, that is to say, related to Elimelech, then it raises the question, well, if he knows this, that his kinsman's wife is returning alone with Ruth, with the Moabite uh, girl, but she's lost everything, then why doesn't he rush over to her house and help her? He's not helping her. He happens, the text says, Vayikemikreha, Ruth chanced upon, happened upon the field of Boaz. Now, whether it happened upon by coincidence, or whether this is part of a divine plan is a very good question. But from Boaz's perspective, it doesn't matter. He makes no attempt to preempt the situation. He makes no attempt to involve himself. He waits till Ruth shows up. Well, when she shows up, he's very kind to her. And he goes beyond what is expected of him, which is very important. But on the other hand, he didn't actually preemptively do anything. And that is significant when we read in chapter two, the pasuk after Ruth says, why are you so kind to me? I'm a stranger. And Boaz says, I know everything you've done. For your mother-in-law, you left your home, you left your father, your mother, your home. And God should pay you back, repay you. And your wages should be complete, full. From the God of Israel, under whose wings, that is protection, you have come. That's an interesting expression. Hashem the God under whose protection you have come. Because in chapter three, which takes place at the threshing floor in the Goren, 
and Boaz wakes up at midnight and there's a woman sleeping next to him. And who are you, he says in chapter three. And the response is, I'm Ruth, your maidservant. You should spread your wings over your handmaid, for you are the Redeemer. Now we'll get to the Redeemer. That's the responsibility of the Redeemer is to take care of the family. So she says to him, you should spread your wings over me. It's very nice that in chapter two, you talked about God's wings, God's protection. But my beloved friend, let's, uh, let's temporarily forget about God. Or let me put it this way. God will spread God's wings over me if you spread your wings over me. God will work through you. For after all, go elata, you are the redeemer. In other words, if this understanding is, is correct, then the picture of Boaz is very interesting. He hasn't really attempted to do anything, even though he may know about the situation. When he does confront Ruth or meet Ruth, he's extremely generous. He's a good guy. He's a good person who doesn't meet his full responsibilities yet. But he's a person who could be, who could take responsibility. There's a lot of, he has a lot of potential. So we'll have to see what is, uh, what is going to, um, what is going to uh, transpire in the story. It is true, and someone just commented and saw on the screen, that there is a closer relative than Boaz. That is true. And that's actually a very important point. So we'll come to that soon. I did, a, there was another comment last week concerning this verse, your reward, your sachar, should be complete. And the comment was that perhaps this is a play off the verse again with Moab. The reason we exclude Moab is because they hired Asher Sachar, they hired uh, Bilam to curse you. So they hired Bilam to curse you, you reject them. So the suggestion last week was that there's a literary link here your your hire, the money paid, in other words, your, your, your wages, should be complete from the God of Israel under whose protection you have come. That's only a possibility that there's a kind of literary effect over here. There may be something else about this verse. In any event, let's first just take a look at chapter 2, briefly, some of the elements of chapter 2. And then move to what is, I think, very central to the story, to the book of Ruth. So chapter 2 is about uh, the gleanings of the field. Ruth is going to bring food back to Naomi. Uh, we recall matnot aniyim in our parlance. It's what you give to the poor. And essentially in the Chumash, the Chumash speaks about three kinds of gifts. They're codified in that tradition. It's called Leket, Shikha, and Peya. Leket, Shikha, and Peya, when you uh, harvest your field, you have to leave a piece of the field. The Torah says in two different places. And then the Torah also speaks about if you uh, are pruning a tree or harvesting, 
and you didn't harvest everything, you missed some things, you're supposed to leave it. And the Torah also speaks in Sefer Devarim about uh, if you did harvest and you put it in the field and you forgot to, to take it, then there too, you are to not to go back and take it. Leave it. Leave it for the poor person. Now, what's interesting that when the Torah speaks about leaving it for the poor person, so it appears essentially in two main places. One is in the book of Vayikra, in chapter 19. It also appears very interestingly in the context of the, the listing of the festivals. It's mentioned again, almost the identical verse, when it talks about the holiday of Shavuot. So that's one place you have it. But then you have in the book of Devarim, additionally, you have a, a reference to Matnot Aniyim. And I thought it was interesting to find that verse. It's chapter, uh, I believe it's chapter 24, we find the verse. Chapter 24 of Devarim. So it says there, Ki tiktor ketzicha b'sodechos. It's chapter 24 of Devarim, verse 19. Don't go back and when you overlook the sheep in the field, don't turn back to get it. It goes to the stranger, ger, to the orphan, yatom, and to the almanah, to the widow. And then the Torah continues, the same thing is true when you beat the fruit of your olives. Lager layatom v'almanah yiyeh. And in verse 21, it talks about the vineyard, the grapes. So in Devarim, three times, it says you leave it for the, for the stranger, for the widow, for the orphan. In the book of Bayikra, it talks about leave it to the stranger and the poor person. And I was thinking actually that in chapter two, Boaz said to Ruth, I'm being so kind to you. What do you mean? You, you left your home, you left your mother, you left your father after your husband died and you went to a foreign land. In other words, Ruth actually is all three rolled into one. She's a gear, obviously, stranger, Moabite, no less. She's a widow. Her husband has died. And effectively, she's a, she's a, she's a widow and she's, a, and she's an orphan. You left your mother and your father. She's a young person. You have no mother and father. You're the perfect candidate for Matnot Naniyam, actually. She's all of them. So here the text plays with that. And what's what the focus of chapter two, actually, and the main point of chapter two, and it raises interesting questions in general, but the main point of chapter two is, Ruth says in the beginning of the chapter, let me go out and glean the field. After I find favor in his eyes. The assumption being that it's not, you're not automatically deserving of gathering the gleanings. You have to find favor. Let me go and see what happens. I'll go to the field. When she gets there, apparently nobody's there. Boaz isn't there yet. So she goes out. Someone's watching her. Okay. But then Boaz shows up. And 
she does find favor in his eyes. In fact, the text says that very clearly. Ruth asked Boaz, Why do I find favor in your eyes, being a stranger? And Boaz explains. And the point here is that Ruth, unbeknownst to herself, is entitled to take certain things. But what Boaz gives her is way beyond what she's entitled to. Because Boaz says, for example, you can take, later on he says this, um, find the verse. Let's see, here it is, verse number 15. After she eats, and Boaz says to his uh, workers, let her also gather between the sheaves. And not only that, in verse 16, you also should pull out some stalks out of the heaps. Vazavtem could mean you should leave or leave them. I'm not sure. But Azavtem and let her gather them, and do not rebuke her. This is more in the Chumash, it's what you leave by accident. The corner you leave on purpose, that's intentional. But the other things is you're harvesting something, you didn't take everything, or you forgot it in the field. But over here, it's intentional. Pull out the stalks for her. Vazavtem, in the Chumash, emphasizes the words, leave it. But over here, we have the verb la'azov in two contexts. First of all, Boaz says, I'm being kind to you because you left your mother and father behind. And here, leave them intentionally, not by accident. Or perhaps it means you should simply leave, let her do what she wants, not just to gather the stalks, but between the stalks. And not only that, earlier he invites her to eat. In the 14th Pasuk, it's actually interesting. He invites her to eat bread. Take your bread and dip it in, in vinegar. And also kali, which is parched corn. The Chumash actually, and I believe there is a reference here, the Chumash speaks about lechem v'kali v'karmel. The prohibition to eat of the new crop, Kochadash. That's found in the Parsha, in the Chumash, in Vayikra, which talks about Shavuot. You can't have the new fruit, the new crop, the new wheat, until you first bring the Omer. The Omer is brought, it's the barley offering in the beginning of the harvest season for the barley. So the, so the book of Ruth actually is alluding to is alluding to the rules of the rules relating around the time of the harvest, which is the time of Pesach, the Omer actually. And what Boaz is doing is going way beyond simply leaving. He's actually instructing his workers to pull out things for her. She's treating her as an equal, not as, not as a straggler, but as an equal. So it's interesting, the Torah commands us to do certain things, 
Boaz goes beyond, which if you think about it, is the basic theme of the Book of Ruth, what we call Chesed. The Chesed in the Book of Ruth implies there is a standard way of behaving. And people in the Book of Ruth adhere to the standard. Even those that are not the heroes are not bad people. But the heroes go beyond. Now, whether you need the standard to go beyond is a very interesting question. One could make the argument that you do. In any event, Boaz goes way beyond. And it's interesting that we are told in chapter two that after Ruth has gathered all of her greetings and she herself eats, she eats and she is satiated and she has extra. So the Torah speaks about in the to eat to the full, to be full. She has even left over, she has more. And she's gonna bring the more back to Naomi. And we are told in chapter two, how much does she glean in this one day? So it says that after she has, uh, let's find the verse, verse number 17 of chapter two, she has an ephra of Um How much? Um, how much is an ephra? So we know what an ephra is because the Torah says that when the man would, uh, when the people would collect the man, uh, the man was an omer. The man was an omer. And the Torah says, Omer Asiri The Torah says in chapter 16 of Shemot that an Omer is one-tenth of an Eifa. Now the Omer feeds one person. So the Eifa feeds 10 people. So she's collecting 10 times what you would expect. Okay, there's, she's eaten already. So she's collecting 10 times the amount. And the idea of the Eifa is very significant and in chapter two, the text picks up on the Eifa. Because when she gets home to Naomi and she sees what she has, and she gives her to eat, that which was left over, she had gathered even more. And Naomi says to her, in verse 19, The Eifa, raises the obvious question, Eifo. It can't be an accident. Nobody could possibly glean so much in one day. It's obvious that wherever you went, the owner of that field is going out of his way to give you much, much more, to send me more. Where, who is this? Who's the one of the Eifo? Who is he, Eifo? Oh, his name was Boaz. Oh, Boaz, she says, he's a relative. He's one of the redeemers. And here we introduce the word goel, which is the critical word in the book of Ruth. One of the critical words, certainly. So Boaz is a goel. And Naomi says to Ruth, in verse number uh, 21 of chapter 2, She said to me, stay with my young men. Until we finished all the harvest. 
there's the barley harvest and there's the wheat harvest. Stay with me, says Ruth. He said to me, stay with the young men. And Naomi says to Ruth in verse 22, she says to Ruth, the daughter-in-law, my, 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 my daughter, she calls her, best that you go out with the young girls. They shouldn't find you in a different field. And the next verse, so she cleaved unto the girls, unto the young girls of Boaz to gather until the barley and wheat harvest were completed. And she stayed with her, her mother-in-law. So we notice the interesting thing. Ruth had said, Boaz said to me, stay with the young men. And Naomi corrects her immediately. Don't stay with the young men, stay with the young women. She already has a different idea in mind about which man she's looking for. And it says in Ruth Obeder, she stayed with the girls, not with the boys. And this sets up, of course, chapter three at the threshing floor and Naomi's idea to, one might say, to coerce Boaz to shame Boaz, perhaps, into doing the right thing to assume his role as the Goel, as the Redeemer. It is true. He's not the closest relative, as he says. That's true. But the closest relative is not going to do anything, Naomi figures. This is a fellow, for whatever reason, who takes some responsibility. Okay, he hasn't done what he's supposed to do, but he's a good person. And the good people, you can go after them, and maybe they'll do a lot of good. The other guy probably is the hopeless case. So that's her thinking over here. In any event, this is the picture of Boaz in chapter two. The picture of a good, a good person uh, goes beyond what the Chumash says, goes beyond, and could possibly uh, go well beyond. That's the hope in the book of Ruth. This is what we have in chapter two. As I'm reading this now, something else struck me as very interesting in this connection of Ruth to Avraham, which is a very interesting connection. And I'm wondering about something else. When Ruth is in the field, uh, so Boaz uh, meets her, Boaz says to her uh, not to go elsewhere. Boaz says to her, don't leave. Bechol tidbakin im narotai, ko. Ko means here here or there, but this place, don't go any other place else. Stay here. We had that word davak. Now, the word davak is an important word in this book. Ruth cleaved unto Naomi in chapter one. There's a bunch of cleaving going on in chapter two. Whom should she cleave to? Cleave to the young women, cleave to the men, cleave to the women. We remember the first time we encountered the word Davak. Therefore says the Torah in the beginning of the Torah. Therefore a man leaves his mother and father and cleaves unto his wife. So the idea of leaving your mother and father and cleaving, which of course Abraham leaves his mother's father's house 
and travels to a distant unknown place, that's certainly true. But even prior to Abraham, we have the idea of leaving your home and cleaving, leaving and cleaving. So the question is, she certainly left, has Ruth. Now the question is the cleaving, the davak. Who will be the one to whom Ruth will cleave? Turns out it won't be the young women or the young men, but an older man named Boaz. That's the plot. That's the plan. So it's interesting, in chapter 2, Boaz instructs her, the coated bakim, cleave here. But in chapter 4, when Boaz goes to the gate, we'll get to that next week in the last of the series, and Boaz goes to the gate, he's determined to do right by Ruth and Naomi, and he goes to the gate, and he sees the closest relative, and he says to the closest relative, Suru Shva Po Ploni Amoni. He says to the relative, closest relative, Mr. X, Ploni Amoni, the one without a name, sit here, Shva Po. And then he takes 10, 10 of the elders, 10 people from the elders of the town. Chapter 4, verse number 2. Vayomer Shvu Po Vayeshevu. says, you sit here, and they sit down. So it's interesting that when Boaz speaks to Ruth about his field, he says, Ko. When he talks to the elders and to the redeemer, who will be the non-redeemer, he says, Po. And this reminds us, of course, of Abraham. He said to the two young men who accompanied him, non-candidates for the Akedah, you stay Po. We will go there. So already there's a hint of this story that Ruth is an Abraham figure and maybe Boaz is an Abraham figure as well. It will be a very good match. Boaz is a Gibor Chayel in chapter 2. Ish Gibor Chayel. And Boaz says to Ruth in chapter 3, You're a woman of valor. He's a man of valor. So they're well suited, they're well matched, but the problem is nothing has happened yet. That's going to take place in chapter 3 at the Goring. That's a brief summary of some of the things we see in chapter 2. And before we get to what is, I think, central to the book, I did want to, uh, just to digress for a moment, um, and to come back to the introduction. The introduction last week talked about the book is, um, the book is set up as, uh, begins with the time of the judges, and it concludes with the king, with David, the genealogy of King David. So there's a movement from the period of the judges to the period of the kingship. And the last word is David. And David is held up in this book as the ideal king. David is the ideal king. There are many pictures of David in, the, in our Bible, many. Shmuel presents a very nuanced, complicated picture of David. Many negatives. Other books are different. Chronicles is different. Other books are different. But in the book of Ruth, clearly David is the ideal. And in the book of Ruth, the claim is that David actually 
descends from, on one hand, Boaz, Peretz. On the other hand, David is a descendant of um, the Moabites. David is a Moabite, half Moabite. That is through his lineage, Ruth being his great grandmother. Question is, is there any evidence of this whatsoever, for example, in the book of Shmuel? The book of Shmuel is largely about David, many chapters about David, beginning in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel and 15 chapters and 24 and two chapters of 40 chapters about David. Is there any hint whatsoever about any of this information we're being given in the book of Ruth about Peretz, about uh, his grandfather. It's very interesting, just a brief digression, that in the book of Shmuel, we, have, we do have some genealogies. For example, when you meet King Saul in chapter nine of 1 Samuel, you have a genealogy of Kish. He has a whole genealogy, it goes back. The, the, the genealogy of Shmuel himself in the first Pasuk, the genealogy of Shmuel himself, that's found in Pasuk Aleph of Shmuel Aleph. When it comes to David, however, it's very striking. We're not given this genealogy. We're talking about his father, something about his brothers, but nothing beyond his father. We don't know the name of his grandfather. We know very little about David, about where, in the book of Shmuel. But I believe there are actually hints there are hints in Sefer Shmuel that the book of Ruth is not coming out of nowhere, but that the book of Ruth, which as I said last week, the, and I have no reason to doubt this, is a later work, part of Ketuvim, those are later works, that there are, are hints in the book of Ruth, in the book of Shmuel, that for example, David is from Peretz. With the term Peretz, I can't get into this now because we're not studying Shmuel, but my point is that the book of Ruth is picking up on something. It's not just inventing something. The word Peretz is a word that appears very, in very, uh, very interesting places in the book of Ruth. Peretz Uzah, Baal Pratzim. So the idea that David is a Peretz person, descended from Peretz, is hinted at in Shmuel. The idea that David has some connection to Moab and Ammon is hinted at twice in the book of Shmuel. When David runs from Saul, he asks the king of Moab to take care of his parents. And he places his parents with Moab, Vayanchem. And later in the second in Shmuel Bet, when the king of Ammon dies, he sends Menachamim to the king of Ammon, Chonun because his father Nachash has died. And David said, I want to be kind to Nachash, he's been kind to me. We don't know the kindness, but we do know that when David was in trouble, he went to Moab to take care of his parents. The Midrashim discussed whether they took care of his parents or whether they got rid of his parents. But So there is some connection. And we do know that in the book of Shmuel and elsewhere in the Bible, David is called my servant, Avdi David, which is a very high praise for the Bible. Moshe's Eved Hashem, Yaakov, Atira Avdi Yaakov. Abraham, I believe in one place is called 
Evid, and David is called Evid many times. His great-grandfather is Oved. So the point is there are these hints in the book of Shmuel, David Avdi, the Moab link, the Peretz story, and of course the Gorin. Chapter 3 takes place in the Gorin. And Goren is a very important in the book of Shmuel. It appears in two very significant places in Sefer Shmuel. The Goren appears when David's attempt to bring the ark back to, to his city, to Ir David, to Yerushalayim, had first the failed attempt, Peretz Uzzah. Peretz Uzzah. And that takes place in Goren Nachon. That's chapter 6 of 2 Samuel. And the book ends, in our tradition, ends with chapter 24, when David discovers the place and sets up the permanent place for God, for the temple, Goran Aravna. Goran Aravna is the end of Sefer Shmuel. So the Goran, the first Goran, which marked the idea that you haven't come to the right place, you can't go beyond. And the Goran at the end of the book, which is the culmination of the book, David has succeeded in establishing God's kingship, which gives legitimacy to David's kingship. That takes place at the Goran. So the book of Ruth, I would maintain, is picking up on certain themes that can be found in Shmuel. And it takes them, of course, it transforms them it's not about politics at all in the in Megillat Ruth. It's all about behavior, personal behavior, kindnesses, going beyond and all that. But it's not in a vacuum. And when we're studying the Book of Ruth and all these biblical narratives, we keep in mind the various intertexts. Speaking of the various intertexts, we can now begin to get to what is one of the, probably the main story that the Book of Ruth draws upon. And that, of course, is the story of the Leverett marriage. In the book of Breshit, there are two kinds of Leverett marriage, two stories, two narratives. The primary one, and the one the book of Ruth plays off in so many ways, is the story of Judah and Tamar, Yehuda and Tamar, which is chapter 38 of Breshit. And that's preceded by chapter 19, as I mentioned, the story of Lot and his daughters. And the story of Lot and his daughters, what motivates the daughters to do what they do, to sleep with their father, and to produce, in their words, Avinu Zara, to out of our father to produce a child. What is motivating them is what they said. They said there is no man, right? Uh, there's no man left cohabit with us. Someone sent me a note this week, but they was in Soar. Don't they know there are people in Soar? To which I responded, first of all, Soar is doomed to destruction. That's number one. Lot saves Soar. But number two, what they mean is in their world. Where they're coming from, their world has been destroyed. And by the way, to buttress that point, that their world has been destroyed, you're talking about reviving a destroyed world. What is very important in that context, again, not an immediate topic now, but what is clear is when you read the story of Lot and his daughters and Sodom and the destruction of chapter 19, 
one immediately turns to a previous story of destruction, which is the story of the, of the flood, of the Mabul, where the world is destroyed. And those two stories are parallel stories, parallel stories. And in fact, the two heroes, the two main characters, Lot and Noah, both undergo similar things. Each, each is drunk. Noah drinks and becomes drunk. And Noah becomes uncovered in his tent. So there's, and something happens to Noah. We don't know exactly what happened. Some kind of sexual transgression. In the case of Lot in chapter 19, it's exactly parallel. He's given to drink and they sleep with their father. So those two stories are parallel stories. And they're parallel in a very deep way because there's a, it's about a world that's been destroyed and the attempt to somehow rejuvenate that world in, in, in a sense. In the case of Lot, um, in the case of Lot, uh, their daughters, his daughters believe that the world is, their world has been destroyed. So they engage in a leveret marriage and the text may not be condemning them but as we'll see in a couple of minutes, the, at the end of the day, that doesn't actually work. Before I continue now, if someone wants to raise a question or comment, it's a good time to do that. And then we'll move to the last leg of this year and continue with it next week and finish next week. But if anyone wants to just unmute yourself if you want to comment or share something and give a moment or two to do I have comments to make. Uh, this is Micah. Just a small little point, uh, uh, just from what you said, it's, uh, it sounds like uh, the um, Ruth may be playing off of Shmuel, but uh, there's not like, the, it's no, not so intertextual as, as if it could go both ways. You know what I mean? It's, uh, it sounds like uh, all the things like Eved and things like that, uh, it couldn't be that there's no real necessary connection. It's just that the, the author of, of Ruth saw some things that it could, you know, latch on to. I agree. I think that, the, well, I mean, my, my point would be that, well, I, I would say the following without getting into, let me make the following point about the book of Ruth and the book of Shmuel, which I'm actually in the process of writing a book on Shmuel, coming out in Hebrew, who knows, a few months. And the main, one of the main points of that book is that the book of Shmuel presents David in two different ways. There's the, David is the ideal king. And there are points at which he actually fully understands that and he's perfect. And then there are the realities of kingship, the temptations and the pitfalls, and what it takes to become king and the politics and the very negative stories there. But the positive stories of David in the book of Samuel, are linked to Abraham. The book of Shmuel, on many occasions, draws a quite powerful link between David and, and, uh, and, uh, and Abraham. So that is common to the book of Ruth and to the book of Shmuel. And that's that peripheral. That's something very deep. I simply gave some more peripheral, and you're right, some more you know, some connections which are not central. But what is central to both books and I'll simply say something now without proving it, without demonstrating it, but I would say the following. The Abraham narrative, it's probably the main point of my book, I think, but it's played out very nicely in the book. 
The Abraham narrative has two foils. There are two characters who are like Abraham, but different. One is Lot, and the other is the king of the Philistines named Avimelech, with whom Abraham has a very important encounter, actually encounters him twice. That Abraham is like Avimelech on one hand, even talks like him, and then he separates from Avimelech, he's different. What the book of, in the book of Shmuel, David is an Abraham character when he's, when the greatness of David. But there's also with David that's connected to the Philistines and connected in a very deep way. David lives with the Philistines. David tries twice to live with the Philistines. David sets out to walk with the Philistine army that's about to fight King Saul and Israel and defeat them. So there are all kinds of connections in the book of Shmuel to the Philistines. David is a Philistine, but he's different. He's not a Philistine. Because at the end of the day, he's Abraham. Abraham is the opposite of the Philistines. The Book of Ruth doesn't use the Philistines as the foil. The Book of Ruth uses Lot as the foil. For the Book of Ruth, it's Lot. But it plays off the Book of Shmuel in that very deep sense. Each book plays off the hero as an Abraham character. And each of the two books um, uses one of the two foils to portray their, their character. Okay, that's a very important point. That's a deep insight. Uh, and I can't, I could demonstrate it. We'll be studying Shmuel. That would take a couple of different sessions. But, so there is a deep connection. But you're right about the point that I made about the Oved, the Eved, and about the Goren, and about the Moab connection, and the use of Peretz is this, as a significant word in the book of Shmuel. Those things are true, but they're what might call them literary effects. They buttress, they support the deeper point that the very construction of the book uses the main character, uses Abraham and his foils to make, to tell this story. Yes, in terms of, I see another question here. I saw a comment, which is a good one, about the story of Noah. And again, this is a side point, not that it's not important, but it's a good point. What is the story of Noah about then? So let me just make, let me just comment. Noah and Lot are parallel stories. I don't want to get too much into this, but it's an important point. The difference between Noah and Lot is a critical difference. The difference in Noah and Lot, and this will lead us into beginning the next piece about, about the leveret marriage, which is central to the book. This is a good way to introduce it. The reason that, the point about Lot's story, Genesis chapter 19, is after the, he has two daughters. The first gets him drunk and sleeps with him. And then the next day, the second daughter does the same thing, gets him drunk and sleeps with him. Each one has a child. And the Torah says at the end of chapter 19, He did not know in her lying down and her getting up. So Lot is unaware. The Torah says, Velo yoda. When it comes to Noah, when Noah is drunk and something happened to Noah, we don't know exactly what. And he says, Noah, Noah, Noah woke up. He knew what his youngest son had done. We, the reader, are not sure what he, what he did, but he did something. 
And when he knows, what does Noah do when he knows? When Noah knows, when Noah knows, he blesses and he curses. When Noah does when he wakes up is to bless and to curse. Now blessing and cursing up to that point in the Torah was God's province. That's how God ran the world. God curses the snake, God curses the land, God blesses the human, God blesses the fish, God blesses the Shabbos. So what Noah does after the flood is to assume God's role, to take responsibility. That's what Noah does. That's the power. And in fact, it's Noah that sets up the land of Canaan as the land in which shame shall subdue Canaan, which is the story of Abraham and the story of the Bible. So the, that story sets up, actually, the ability of Noah to know, and to know and to act is very central. And Lot doesn't know. Now, if you don't know, in the case of Lot, if you know, then you can transform a, an act which is problematic into something positive. But if you don't know, you can't transform it. So, for example, in the case of Lot, his daughters sleep with him. Okay, incest. The fact of the matter is that every Leverett marriage is actually incest, by, by, by definition. It's your brother's uh, brother. That's incest in the Torah. It's one of the forbidden taboo. So the, what legitimizes the incest in that case is the overriding idea of building the house. But in order to do that, you need both parties to know and to know what they're doing. So in the case of, of Lot, it remains incest. It never can be fully justified because loyada. The knowing is everything. In the case of Noah, by contrast, it's not about leveraged marriage, but it's about understanding your role in the world and your responsibilities it starts with facts and with knowledge. You can't make good decisions and the right decision and the moral decision unless you have knowledge. I think we're living in a time when that is quite obvious to us through the pandemic, that if the leader has no knowledge and says all kinds of stupid things, you're gonna be in trouble. Knowledge is the beginning of everything. Doesn't mean you make the right decision, but without knowledge, you can't make the right decision. So in the case of Lot, he, he doesn't know. And now that's, that's the significance of that parallel, the deeper significance. And now we can move to the story which lies at the heart of the book of Ruth. There's more than one story. This is central to the book, and that's the idea of, of, of leveret marriage. And leveret marriage, as it appears nar narratively in Sefer Breshit, where the main character is actually Yehuda. And Yehuda is, uh, of course, the progenitor of Boaz, because the book of Ruth ends with Ela Todot Peretz. And actually, at the very end of the book of Ruth, um, at the very end of the book of Ruth, there's a blessing that's given, the very end of the book. The book has a lot of blessings. And the women say to, um, say to uh, Boaz, um, actually they say to, 
they say, before that, I'm sorry, this is found, this is found in verse 11 of chapter 4. In verse number 12, So everybody says, your house should be like the house, the house of Peretz, that Tamar bore for Yehuda. So actually the story of Yehuda and Tamar is explicitly mentioned in the book of Ruth. It's the blessings that appear at the end of the book. It's a book with blessings at the end, all kinds of blessings. And one of the blessings is, the house should be like the house of Peretz that Tamar bore for Yehuda. And the last verses of Megillat Ruth, Ewa told us Peretz. So the book is inviting us, one might say commanding us, to go back and look at the story of Yehuda and Tamar. And especially given the fact that Ruth is a Moabite, and Moab, you think of Moab, you think of the other story in Breshit, the birth of Moab. Moab is born to Lot, without, unbeknownst to him, and to his oldest daughter, Moab, from father. That's what she called Moab. So there's an invitation here to look at the story of Yudan and Tamar. Now, to look at it fully, we're not going to do that, but we want to look at it in as much as it casts a light on Megillah Ruth, and we'll start with that now. And next week we will uh, complete that and then we'll move to more details about chapter three and four. Chapter three, let's begin chapter three. Chapter three is, begins by Tomelon Nomi Chamota, BT, Vakesh So Naomi says to Ruth, she calls her my daughter. Ruth is young, a youngster. Naomi is the mother in law. And she says, I, I want you, I seek a home for you, which will be good. A monoach. We recall that in chapter one, Naomi was instructing her two daughters in law to go home. She said to the two daughters, Go and find menucha. Go and find comfort in the home of your husbands. Go back to Moab, you're Moabite women. You're very kind. Go in, but you need to find Menucha. She seeks Menucha for them. It's a story in chapter one where each person is thinking about the other person. Naomi thinks what's best for them. And they, and especially Ruth, thinks what's best for Naomi. That's the, that, that's, that's, that's the relationship. Each one puts the other one first. And now in chapter three, Naomi says to Ruth, I want to find for you Manoach. Chapter 3, verse 2. The one with, with who, who, whose girls were close to you, not the boys, but the girls. He is winnowing on the threshing floor in the Goren tonight. So bathe and anoint yourself. So here, there is a Korean Ketiv. It's written, 
you shall, you should bathe, you should anoint yourself, you should put on your, uh, your skirt, your garment, and go down to the threshing floor. But it's written here, in this JPS text, it has the orality. I, I thought in a different text, some of the other verbs have the yud. Yorality means I will go down. Samti means I will, I will put on. So when you have a Korean Kativ, actually, the question is, what's that about? Is it a scribal mistake? Or is it something else? And I believe that often it's not a mistake. Often the writing, sometimes it's an archaic letter, but it's kept in for a purpose. And the purpose is that the book wants you to read it both ways. In this particular case, it's written, if you keep the Yud, but it, it reads, I will go down, I will bathe, I will go down. Because in point of fact, the Yibum, the leverant marriage, if it's going to take place, should not be between Ruth and Boaz. Ruth is not related directly to Boaz. She's related to Boaz through her husband's father. But the, in point of fact, we, when Boaz is introduced to us in chapter 2, Naomi has a kinsman from the family of Elimelech. His name is Boaz. So the appropriate person to choose for Yibum is not Ruth. It's Naomi. But the problem is, since the purpose of Yibum is to produce a child who carries on the name, Naomi herself said in chapter one, I'm too old to have children. She says it. So Kanti I'm too old. So therefore, Ruth is the candidate, but Ruth is representing not just herself. She has lost her husband, but she represents herself and Naomi. She's going as Naomi's proxy. That's the important point over here. And basically the, the Tamar of Judah and Tamar in the book of Ruth is two people. It's on one hand, Naomi, but she can't do it herself. So she sends her proxy Ruth instead of Naomi. And that's actually how the book ends. The book ends with the women saying, you got bain Naomi. A child has been born to Naomi. Now, of course, they understand that the child is Ruth's child. Your beloved daughter-in-law has given birth. She's better than seven sons. And she calls her my daughter throughout. So the, basically what you have over here, I would call it the double leveret marriage, the double yibum. And that's the Korean Ketiv that we have in the beginning of chapter three. Okay, let's continue. This is what she says tonight. Now, the Hebrew Shachbo, this is what you have to do. When he lies down, so go, she says, and we notice the two verbs that appear over here. One is yada, to know, which often has a sexual meaning. And the other is shachav, to lie down, which often has a sexual meaning. Uncovering his feet. Is it the feet or something else is a good question. But in other words, 
I would say a highly suggestive behavior, lying down next to this man in the night, Bishachvo, he'll tell you what to do. Now, I'm not suggesting that actually in the story anything more than this happens, but the language is very suggestive. And when you think about the story here, in conjunction with the two other levered stories, narrative stories in Breshit, it's interesting that there were three stories. The first one is straight up incest, father-daughter, and he doesn't know anything. He doesn't know. So that's very problematic. The second story, which is critical, is Judah and Tamar. Get to that story. That's not his daughter. That's his daughter-in-law. But she's still called a daughter-in-law. There we'll see about that. He's, when he first meets her, he doesn't know who she is. Genesis chapter 38. And then we have our story. Our story. This story is, I would say, a cleaner version of the first two. But for a woman to put herself in that situation anytime, and especially in the biblical context, is highly problematic. And Ruth is not somebody who was simply, you know, passive person. In chapter one, Naomi said, go home. And Ruth said, I ain't going. And Naomi saw it's hopeless. You can't change this person. It's just stubborn. She's not leaving. So Ruth is someone who's got a mouth and she does what she, and she says to Naomi, I'm going out to the field tomorrow. To so she's someone, who, a willful person. And what's her response over here? I'll do exactly what you say. She does what her mother will commands her to do. So she's going to do the right thing. It is the right thing. It puts her in a very problematic situation, but she doesn't care about that. She's going to do what's right. That's the character. That's So Naomi hatches the plot, and Ruth has to carry it out for her own sake, but also for Naomi. And that's what happens. What happens, of course, is she does this, and Boaz's response, he wakes up in the middle of the night, a woman is sleeping by lying next to him. By Yom and Miat, why you? I am your Amma. I'm your servant Ruth, your maidservant, Hen Amma. Cast your, spread your robe over your hand, over your maid. You are a redeemer. It's actually very interesting here. And then we'll jump, we'll begin with Yehuda and Tamar in a moment. But it's interesting, she calls herself Anochi Ruth Amatecha. Now, if you go back to chapter two for a moment, you remember that uh, she described herself differently. She's, when Boaz is kind to her, she says to Boaz, uh, why are you being so kind to me? And Boaz explains, and then you come to verse number 13 of chapter 2. You are most kind to comfort me, she says. And you spoke, you speak, you, you speak tenderly, you speak gently. She calls herself a shifcha. And then she says, 
which is an interesting verse. What she's saying is, I'm not even a shifcha. I'm not, I'm not even one of your uh, slave, female slaves. Now it has a double meaning. That is to say, the narrator has another idea. I'm not going to be one of your slaves. Can you, what, she mean, what she's saying is, I'm not even a slave, not even a shifcha. But you can read it, yeah, I'm not going to be a slave, which of course sets up the future truth, which is, she's not going to be a slave, she's going to be a wife. So there's an interesting, the narrator plays it. But she calls herself a shifcha. But in chapter 3, lying next to Boaz, she says, I'm an amma. And what is the difference between a shifcha and an amma? There's a difference. Remember the story of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah could not have a child. It says for 10 years, and by the way, 10 years is found also in Ruth chapter 1. They're married for 10 years. Ruth is married for 10 years with no children. Sarah is married for 10 years with no children. And she says, take my shifcha, right? Hagar is the shifcha of Sarah. Hagar shifchat Sarai. And she's taken as an amma. So the amma actually is still a servant, but it's a higher level than a shifcha. Because the amma is one whom you may marry. You live with the amma. The shifcha just serves you. The amma is a kind of quasi-wife. So when Ruth says, Ranochi Ruth Amatecha, she didn't say Anochi Ruth Shifchatecha. Amatecha is different. You should protect me. You should care for me. Spread your canopy over me. For Asta Knafecha Amatcha Kigoel Ata. So she's defining herself differently. I'm not the Shifcha that you found in chapter two. I'm the potential Amma, and remember something, you are the Redeemer. She calls him on his responsibility. Uh, there's a question from the Facebook uh, live stream about that. Uh, Amma also means limb. No, she's Davuk, i.e. part of him. Amma means limb? Does it? Amma is a measurement in the in the... Possibly, I don't know if Amma means limb. I'm not familiar with that. Amma is maybe related to the word aim. I really don't know. I have to check the uh, the uh, derivation of Amma, what it's connected to. I'll, I'll take a look later today and see what Amma is. Amma, of course, is the measure in the, whether that's the same word or a different word, I'm not sure. But anyway, functionally, it's clear that the Shifch and the Amma are not the same thing. The Amma of Ria in the Torah in chapter 21, in Mishpat, in chapter 21, that's the slave girl that you that you take as a slave whom you're supposed to marry. And you have, you're supposed to marry her. The Torah in chapter 21 of Exodus transforms the slave woman into, into a wife. The, the rules of the responsibilities of the husband in marriage, share, suit, and owner, are found in Mishpat, in chapter 21. The idea is not to have a female slave. The idea is to transform the slave in, into a wife, into an Amma. She's called an Amma. Amma Evriya. Not Shifra Evriya. Amma Evriya. Okay. Now let us segue into, we'll just begin the story of Judah and Tamar. I'll give a brief introduction. And next week we will try to accomplish two things if possible. 
to complete the Judah-Tamar story and its relationship, and to understand what's going on in chapter four, which takes place at the gate. First is the journey, the field, the threshing floor, and the gate. So very briefly, um, very briefly, the, um, the story of Judah and Tamar, which is chapter 38 of Breshit, a very celebrated chapter, takes place after the sale of Joseph, chapter 37, and it's all about Judah. He's the main character of chapter 38. Of course, there is Tamar, who's going to be his guide, one might say his Rebbe, but chapter 38 begins with Judah departing from his brethren. So, the the, uh, the Torah then tells us the story about Judah. Judah sees, we are told in chapter 38, a Canaanite woman, sees her and takes her, and very quickly they have three children, Er, Onan, and the third is Shelah. And the Torah says in chapter 38, Breshit, chapter 38, that Yehuda found a wife for his oldest son, uh, heir, and that is a woman named Tamar. We are told nothing about Tamar except her name. We're not told of her lineage, told nothing about her. She may be a Canaanite, but in the text she's a non-Canaanite. She's not connected to any particular group of people. Unlike Judah's own wife, who's a bat ish Moshua. Judah's wife that he takes sees and takes, were never given her name. Just her lineage, she's the daughter of a Canaanite. Now the story of Judah and Tamar, so what happens next of course is that um, God, the oldest son of Judah, his name is Er, Er is Ra, Ayin Reish is Reish Ayin, Er is Ra, God kills him. Judah then commands the next son, Onan, to marry his brother's deceased wife and to, to extend the kin lines, the family lines of his brother. But his brother refuses to, to do that. He says, Onan refuses to do that, spills the seed, he refuses to do it. God kills him as well. God kills both of them. So now we're down to one son who remains and Judah's afraid that the third son will die as well. He blames Tamar for the death of his two sons. We, the reader, know better, but Judah doesn't know that. And what he does is he says to Tamar, leave my home, go away. And when my oldest son grows up, Shelo, he's young. When son number three grows up, you know, I'll be in touch. But meanwhile, go back to your father's house and remain a widow in mourning until son number three marries you, which we know is going to be never, because he has no intention of ever allowing that. So she waits and she waits and she waits. Then, of course, Judah's own wife dies, and he's off to the races. He's, he goes, he's off to Timna, to the sheep shearing, and Tamar hears about this, takes off the widow's garments, dresses herself, covers her face, 
stands on the crossroads and Judah thinks she's a prostitute and propositions her and she demands from him payment. I'll send you something later, he says, that we don't accept that, later payments. I want something now. What do you want? I want your seal, I want your signet, I want your coat. He gives those things to her, those identifying marks, also symbols of leadership, sleeps with her and she gets pregnant. And then she disappears and Judah can't get back, can't retrieve. He sends his friend Hira to retrieve the lost, uh, the lost, uh, the lost uh, collateral that he gave. She demands collateral, a ravon. He says the collateral for the payment, for the gold he was going to send. She's disappeared. He discovers three months later, they tell him that your daughter Tamar is pregnant. And given the fact that she is betrothed in a sense to son number three, she has the status of a married woman, adulterous woman, says Judah, burn her. Take her out and let her burn. And as she's being sent out to burn, she sends Judah these, these objects, which identify him as the father. Hakir no, do you recognize or not, says Tamar to Judah through a messenger. Judah recognizes and says she's more righteous than I. He knew her not again. At the end of chapter 38, there is the this birth of of not one child to Tamar, but two. She has twins. One is Peretz and one is Zerach. Zerach, they thought would be born first. His hand was out and they thought he'd be born first. But then his hand, it goes back in, inside Tamar, and then the other one jumps out. Peretz, Peretz. Then the second son comes out, whose name is Zerach. That is the story of Judah and Tamar that one might say is positioned between the sale of Joseph in chapter 37 and chapter 39, which continues the Joseph story. There's an entire lengthy chapter devoted to Judah. So the question is, what is that chapter doing there? There's been a lot written about this, discussed about it, and it's actually a pivotal chapter because it's for the first time sets up the possibility that a family can be put together. That's what that chapter is actually about. And that's what the book of Ruth is about. I would say next week we will look more deeply at the story of Judah and Tamar and its connection to the book of Ruth. I would add something else about the story of Judah and, and, and Tamar, which is that the objects that Tamar demands of Judah your staff. means literally your fringes, or it means your coat and your, your seal. These are signs of leadership and of kingship. And what's interesting is that in the story of Judah and Tamar, the wife of Judah is named Bat Shua. Shua means a prince. And the friend who accompanies Judah is named Chira. Chorim are royal officers in the Bible. So the story, even when you read the story about Judah, of course, he has the symbols of kingship, the symbols of leadership. He's married to the daughter of a prince, and his friend is also a prince, a high royal official, Chorim. So it is about the leadership, 
and there's a sense of kingship over there. And the sense one gets in that story is at the end of the day, the king emerges from Judah. But in order for the king to emerge from Judah, he has to regain the symbols of his kingship, which he's given away. He's given them away because his behavior is not the behavior of one who should be king. He's taken zero responsibility. And the beginnings of Judah's uh, greatness, actually, are the moment that he confesses. When he confesses, he sets things right, and he also regains the symbols of his kingship. I would just conclude today, before we get next week with Judah Tamar chapter 4, if we can do it all in one week, I don't know, but that it's interesting that the symbols of leadership and kingship, Judah gives away, and he regains them. But it's also interesting that Tamar demands them. In demanding the symbols of leadership and kingship, Tamar is saying something additional, which is, in truth, you think you're the king. You think you're the leader. You know nothing about leadership. The one who understands responsibility is me. The one in whose hands the seal and the staff belong is me. And if you, if you, when you come to an understanding, I will graciously return them to you. That's the story of Judah and Tamar. It's interesting, and I'll conclude with the following thought. There's a poem that is recited often at, this, at a Brit, circumcision, and it's also recited by some, it's a piyot that's recited by some on the seventh day of Pesach, Yom Yabasha, by Yehuda Levi, very beautiful poem. And in that poem, Yehuda Levi makes reference to the story of Judah and Tamar. The seal is connected midrashically to circumcision. Pitilim is connected to, it, to the talit, to the tzitzit, which Yehuda Levi understands to mean the outer sign of covenant and the internal sign of covenant. And Yudah Levi turns to God after he said, talks about fulfilling these two mitzvot and he turns to God and says, Hakenah, recognize please, O master of the universe. Who has the chotemet and the p'tilim? Who represents you in the world? And he picks up on the story of Judah and Tamar. Because when Tamar says to Judah, I demand the Chotemet and, and the Petilim, what she's really saying is, you're undeserving of these symbols of leadership. Symbols of leadership make sense if you're really a leader. If you're not a leader, why should you have the symbols of leadership? So when Judah has to transform himself through confession to be worthy of regaining those symbols, but the kingship will emerge, the leadership emerges from Judah. But it only emerges from Judah through the instruction of Tamar. And that's the story of the Book of Ruth. Boaz is a great hero in the book, there's no question about it. But everybody needs a Rebbe in this world. He has two Rebbe's. One is Naomi, and the other is, of course, Ruth. And that will take place, and has taken place in chapter 3, so next week we'll study in more depth Judah and Tamar, 
and its connection to the Book of Ruth, and then, of course, chapter four, and the glorious ending to a very beautiful book. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.